John chapter 8, starting verse 48, we'll read through to verse 59. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And if you seen Abraham, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge from the outset that every jot and tittle of your word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped, ready for every good work. We acknowledge that every portion of your word should be mulled over, contemplated, meditated upon, studied. Lord, we find it a tremendous joy to study your word, whatever passage it might be. And simultaneously, we are so awestruck by passages such as these, such clear proclamations regarding the deity of your Son. And I pray that you would take these truths and plant them in our hearts. I pray that you would equip us from the example of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Help us to engage the culture around us as he did. Help us to speak the truth and to speak the truth in love as he did. Help us to not back down, but to courageously stand firm in your truth, having put on the full armor of God. We ask today that you would train us and equip us further, that you would cause us to recognize the, the undeniable claims that Jesus made to his own deity you would cement these truths in our hearts and minds and make us ready to share them with others. We thank you for this marvelous gift of your Son, our only hope of salvation. We pray this in his name. Amen. It's important that we always be prepared for conflict. Because conflict is really an inevitable part of our fallen world. 
Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden fundamentally changed the peace and harmony that was otherwise provided for man. Now all of humanity is estranged from God and from one another. We all know we don't have to go beyond our own hearts to recognize that the wicked human heart is a sin-producing factory. It's bent on its own aggrandizement. We want to make much of ourselves and little of others. Quite often, our desire to push ourselves forward is at the expense of others. And so in this context in which everyone looks out for themselves, conflict is inevitable. Yes, it's true that God's general grace is still operating, preventing sinful man from being as bad as he could be. And it's also true that God's special grace is calling, regenerating, and sanctifying a people for God's own possession, uniquely marking them as trophies of God's grace and making them ambassadors for Jesus Christ and causing them to be examples of God's love and God's compassion. Both of those factors certainly lessen the amount of evil that's in conflict that is present in the world, but they don't prevent conflict. As a matter of fact, it's the existence of two kingdoms here on earth that there are people still enslaved to the devil, and then there are those who have been freed from his tyranny and been made sons of God by God's marvelous grace that ensures that we're going to be in the midst of a war. This is because we're told in 1 Peter 5, 8, that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Peter tells Christians that we must maintain a sober spirit, that we must be on the alert. Jesus explained himself in in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus warns us to be ready for such situations. We must not be surprised when attacks come against us. As they've treated our Lord and Savior, we can be sure as his disciples, they'll treat us similarly. Even though we've been given the glorious privilege of announcing the terms by which sinful, rebellious man can have peace with God, with their creator. Hardened rebels will often lash out against the very ones who bring this good news to them. So the very ones bringing this message of peace, the very ones who have been made peacemakers, are often the subject of quite a bit of abuse. For we recognize that the good news that we bring involves sinful man having to do the one thing he most despises, and that is to admit his own sin and to bow before his maker. Remember, man's default position is to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He doesn't come to the light because he's fearful that the light will expose his deeds. He loves the darkness, and so he flees from the light. And so as sinful man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, this suppression can happen in a number of different ways, as we're going to note in the text before us today. 
Those occupations which involve dealing with inevitable conflict make themselves ready for conflict before the specific occasion of conflict occurs, right? If we know that we're about to go into some battle, it makes sense for us to prepare ourselves for the battle that we're about to step into. The time to prepare is definitely before you're faced with the real-life situation. It's for this reason that military and police forces develop ROEs, or otherwise known as rules of engagement. These rules of engagement provide instructions and principles and rules for these combatants to follow. It determines when and where and how force will be used in any conflict. Now, the rules will vary from one organization to another, but they provide general principles for how adversaries, how enemies, should be responded to. Rules of engagement provide consistent, understandable, and repeated standards for those who are serving us, serving us as soldiers or as police officers are the big ones, giving them a paradigm from which to view engagements, conflicts that they'll that will inevitably arise. Typically, rules of engagement allow greater amounts of force to be used as the force being used by the enemy increases. It's usually commensurate with if they start to use this sort of force, you can use this sort of force in peacekeeping sorts of situations. At war, it's a different story. But soldiers who are engaged in the maintenance of peace are allowed deadly force only if combatants are themselves using it. Now, these rules of engagement are helpful because they synchronize the activities of military personnel and the overarching goals that political leaders have. There's always a very fine balance in these rules of engagement, how they should be put forward. There's always two competing goals that are having to be carefully balanced. Force needs to be used effectively in order to accomplish a mission. If you don't have the ability to actually accomplish the mission, then how are you going to accomplish it, right? So there's a sense in which they have to be given the liberty in order to make sure that they can accomplish mission objectives. Yet force has to be controlled so as to not become excessive. Excessively tight rules of engagement can prevent a mission from being accomplished effectively. But on the other hand, excessively loose rules of engagement can facilitate the escalation of a conflict, which while being tactically effective, in other words, you actually accomplish the mission, you end up losing the war. You end up causing a worse problem than you started off with. I mention all of this because I believe the scriptures are clear that we're immersed in a war. That we're not just merely civilians, that we're soldiers in a spiritual warfare. We're told to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6.11. So a warfare mentality must be adopted. I dare say one of the most dangerous situations for Christians today is believing that we're not at war. Neglecting to realize that there is a spiritual warfare always going on. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Listen, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as 
a soldier. Point is this conflict is inevitable. So preparations need to be made. Now, while the conflict that Christians engage in is of a spiritual nature, it's conflict nonetheless. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Our weapons are of a much different nature than those of our military personnel. For our conflict is of a different nature. Our rules of engagement, therefore, are different too. For our enemy is also one whom we're commanded to love and pray for. Matthew 5:44, recognizing that we too were once where they are, that we once were enslaved to the lusts of our flesh and the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as they. We once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. There ought to be compassion in our hearts towards the lost because we recognize that we were once there too. And were it not for the grace of God, we would still be there. So you can recognize real quickly that our rules of engagement are going to be quite different than typical rules of engagement. When we remember that we were once there and we also remember our Lord's words to us that those who are enemies were called to pray for and those who hate us were supposed to respond in love toward. We're called to provide a defense for the hope that is in us to explain and bear witness to the hope that's in us. But we're also told in that same passage in 1 Peter 3.15 how we're to do so with gentleness and reverence. Note that the manner in which we engage the lost is tremendously important to our Lord. It's not just a matter of speaking truth in a cold fashion, but speaking truth in love. This is what we must do. Now, one of the unique features of the Bible is its variety of literary genres. Because we're not only afforded with straightforward commands and exhortations like we see in the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, especially the law sections of the Old Testament. But we're also provided with history and narrative portions of the Bible, which manifest instruction to us via Example. Now, there are times, you all know this very well, that there are times which narrative passages, they always truthfully record the events as they happen. It doesn't necessarily always mean that the example being given is worthy of imitation, right? As a matter of fact, some of those are bad examples meant to warn us away from the behavior that they were engaged in. But it's a beautiful thing when we have the Word of God recounting to us truthfully, accurately, as it does everything, But in this case, the life of Jesus. For did Jesus ever do anything wrong? Was there ever any sin found in Jesus? No. So when Jesus sets an example, we can be sure that it's an example we're following. Back in the 1990s, a grassroots phenomenon kind of swept through, especially youth culture and evangelical Christianity. It started by a 
man by the name of Dan Seaborn in Holland, Michigan, who started in from his youth group really pushing forward the acronym WWJD. The acronym spread through, especially the United States, through Bible studies and Christian paraphernalia. The motto, what would Jesus do, was being used to remind evangelical Christians, especially youth, of their duty to act in a manner that would demonstrate Christ's likeness, so it would demonstrate the love of Christ, these sorts of concepts. WWJD began showing up on just about everything. <laughs> you could get it on bracelets and necklaces and Bible cases and bumper stickers and T-shirts, as the typical Jesus junk goes. It spreads through all of these things, and this was found on just about everything. The problem with the acronym, which might have been okay if it just existed as it was, but the problem with the acronym is that it's only so good as your understanding of what Jesus actually did. Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort have encouraged the use of a different acronym, WDJD, What Did Jesus do. Because the problem with WWJD, when coupled with postmodern relativistic philosophy, is I have my own personal Jesus, and I'll do whatever my personal imagined Jesus would do in this situation. And everybody going around imagining that they can just picture what Jesus would potentially do in this situation with no biblical basis for their argument as to why Jesus would behave in that particular way, in that particular situation. You see, your idea of how Jesus would act or respond to a particular situation that you're encountering must be based in some real knowledge of the genuine Jesus as he interacted historically with people around him. So for that reason, it's important that we know him before we attempt to explain how, what he would do given the situations that we encounter. WWJD works great for the person who knows WDJD. The person who knows what Jesus did do is now equipped to talk about what Jesus would do in their particular situations. And here's the beauty of our study of the four Gospels. We're becoming intimately acquainted with Jesus Christ. And here in this passage, I believe we can learn some rules of engagement from our Lord and Savior. We don't have to guess about how Jesus would interact with unbelievers. We have it exemplified for us. We don't have to be surprised by the variety of reactions that unbelievers give us when we bring the gospel. For they're exemplified in this passage before us. Jesus has gone before us and he has set an example. And here is one case in which we need not question whether the historical narrative is merely recounting what happened, whether good or bad. For Jesus always acted in accordance with God the Father's will. He only spoke that which God the Father told him to speak. So we know that the example that Jesus gives us is worthy of imitation. Jesus, the Son of God, was sinless. So his actions, not only his words, his actions are a treasure trove of instruction for us. Isn't it a beautiful thing to know when you open up the Bible and you read about Jesus Christ that you won't go wrong if you follow Jesus? Earthly teachers can lead you wrong. I promised the, before, before the Lord that I would never intentionally mislead someone 
But the truth is, I'm not infallible. I could be wrong, but Jesus isn't. This is why our continual appeal is to the scriptures, to the Bible. What does God's word say? For it is here that you won't go wrong. You'll never go wrong learning from Jesus. So as you look at the climactic final interchange between Jesus and this group of Jews in John 8, verses 48 through 59, I want to help us contemplate and to learn together six rules of engagement. Six rules of engagement that we find from Jesus' own example. Six rules of engagement. I'm going to rifle them off right now. You're not going to be able to write them all down. They're semi-long. We'll, we'll come to them individually. If you need to get the tape later, we'll put it up online. You can get it. Number one, be ready to engage in rational dialogue with unbelievers. Be ready to engage in rational dialogue with unbelievers. There's first step. First rule of engagement. Be ready to engage in rational dialogue with unbelievers. Number two, expose baseless accusations calmly and confidently. Expose baseless accusations calmly and confidently. Three, don't obsess over protecting your own reputation. Don't obsess over protecting your own reputation. Four, let nothing deter you from gospel proclamation. Let nothing deter you from gospel proclamation. Five, respond to condescension and demeaning humor with sober, articulate truth. Respond to condescension and demeaning humor with sober, articulate truth. And sixth, trust in God to manifest the truth, expose men's hearts, and preserve his servants. Trust in God to manifest the truth, expose men's hearts, and preserve his servants. The first rule of engagement we should take note of is this. One, be ready to engage in rational dialogue with unbelievers. Be ready to engage in rational dialogue with unbelievers. And while the passage before us, we see Jesus continue to engage in rational dialogue with these individuals, we'll see in a moment that really their responses are becoming more and more emotional and more and more less rational than they were at the start. But I think the surrounding context shows this rationality, at least an attempt at reasoned conversation. If you read verses 31 through 47, which we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, you'll see that there is a discussion going on between Jesus and a group of Jews who have supposedly believed in him, as verse 30 and 31 said. But Jesus' diligence to expose men's true condition leads him to engage in a lengthy dispute with these supposed believers. And it becomes quite evident that their belief was superficial as their reactions to Jesus get worse and worse through this interchange, culminating, as we see at the end of this passage, with them attempting to stone Jesus. They go from, in verse 30, saying some believed in him, then Jesus talking to these supposed believers, and by the end of this conversation, they're picking up stones and ready to kill Jesus on the spot. We've noticed before that Jesus knew what was in men's hearts, and therefore he wouldn't entrust himself to particular groups of people. You see this in John 2.24. It's a good example. We also see that Jesus would respond to what was in men's hearts. How, many, how often did that happen? Jesus performs a miracle, and there's like double miracles or triple miracles going on, right? Because he not only performs a miracle, but then he responds to the reasoning that's in his critics' hearts. They haven't even said it outwardly, but he's responding to what they're thinking about. Jesus knew what was in 
men's hearts. So isn't it incredible? Think about it this way. He knew where these people really were. It's incredible to think that he engages in this reasoned disputation with them, this conversation with these men, when he knows what's really in their heart. He knows that murderous intentions are still there. He shows such patience, such grace and mercy. I really believe this to be the case. He's exposing their true condition. He's exposing what's really on the inside of them. He won't allow them to just maintain a superficial belief in him. He will press the matter. He will expose the heart. He will continue to speak the truth to them and expose what their real intentions are. Perhaps because the worst state a sinner can be in is the one who thinks he's saved when he's lost. Perhaps that's what's behind Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisaic work of conversion. As the Pharisees would go around trying to convert people. Jesus says this amidst the scathing rebukes that he has for the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Among them, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. He's saying all of your evangelistic endeavor is actually hurting people. You're putting them in a worse state than they were before. It doesn't take much, does it, for us to recognize that there is a worse state? You come across a cult member who are believing lies about who Jesus is, about how salvation occurs. It is a much worse state that they are in than the person who has no connection with a false religion. That's the danger with false religion. That's why we have to purport, we have to proclaim the truth, expose the falseness of false religions. There's example after example of Jesus' careful and plain reasoning, leaving his opponents stumped and at a loss for words. Note that it wasn't that Jesus employed complicated theological jargon. His language is very grassroots. It's very down to earth. It's very simple. It wasn't that they were left speechless because they couldn't follow what he was saying. They could follow what he was saying. He simply proclaimed the truth. And that truth cut to the heart. It stopped their mouths. It's like Job, right at the end of Job, where God shows up and displays and asks Job a billion questions and Job can't answer any of them, right? And at the end, Job's like, he covers his mouth, right? He says, I can't speak anything in light of this marvelous reality of your sovereignty and your truth. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, we read this in Matthew twenty-two forty-six: No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Do you see this? Jesus engaged in rational dialogue. He didn't retreat when someone had a question. He answered questions. Now, he knew intentions such that he would answer questions sometimes with questions. <laughs> but we see him never turning away a true and genuine question regarding himself or the gospel. And quite often he exercises tremendous patience and mercy with those who are bent on Jesus' own destruction. You see, they had to acknowledge that they couldn't respond to Jesus' argumentation. They couldn't answer his questions. Jesus says, what wrong do you find in me? And they, they can't find any wrong in him. So they've got nothing. So what do you do when you can't out-argue someone? What do you do when you, there's nothing else to say? Well, it would be befitting if you just kept your mouth shut. But what does sinful, rebellious man do in such a case? 
He resorts to attacks, right? Insults. What we call ad hominem arguments against the man. <laughs> I can't deal with your words, so I'm going to try to attack something to you. And this is what they end up doing. Christians ought to be prepared. We ought to be the best prepared to engage in rational conversation with people. Think about it this way. Which worldview makes the best sense of reality? Who is best prepared to reason with people about the world? Christians are. Our worldview accords with reality. So we can speak about any subject and have a firm ground to speak from. We who know the truth should have no hesitation to speak and to tell the truth to others. Pastors are encouraged in the pastoral epistles to be ready to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Okay, for what purpose? That they would also train the saints, that they would know how to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, right? It's not just a, oh, we just hope that the pastors understand how to do that, so they're good. (laughs) It's that they would know this and then equip the saints with those same abilities. So all of us as the Lord's servants should be ready to exhort in sound doctrine, proclaim the truth, and refute that which contradicts. Show the error of falsehood and show the truth of the truth. The duty and a delight to engage people in reasoned inquiries in pursuit of the truth. For even we know this, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Pastors are also exhorted in 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word in season, out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting, listen, with great patience and instruction. If pastors are to exhibit those qualities, then I think it's not a far stretch or a leap to say that all believers should engage in these sorts of qualities and behaviors. That not only do we exhort and rebuke and reprove, but we do so how? With great patience and instruction. That we'd be willing to come alongside people and explain the gospel and to walk with them. Answer questions. All Christians must be long-suffering in their evangelism. We're looking to establish long-term relationship with people. We're not merely looking for conversion. Was that, was that the goal that Jesus gave us in the Great Commission? He said, go and make what? Disciples, which means ongoing relationship. So we're engaging in a, in a momentary conversation with the hope that this conversation will continue. <laughs> they'll be able to continue to invest in this individual Certainly we want to see them converted. Certainly we want to see them saved. But we also want to see them transformed and sanctified and made more like Christ. And then then they themselves proclaim the gospel to others. Now certainly all instructions like these have to be tempered. You know, whenever you make a real strong appeal that we need to be patient and long-suffering with unbelievers, we need to just hang in there, stick with them. We've got to keep on, you know, keep on keeping on. There's always someone who's going to bring up another verse of scripture, which is good and appropriate. Not all of the time does every sermon get to temper every single little point. Okay, just recognize that. You know, we'll always find something that's like, well, what about this passage? How does that temper this? And that's good to think that way. But don't allow that to remove the truth of any other passage of scripture. In this case, I think of Jesus' words that we not throw pearls before swine. 
In other words, there's a certain sense in which there can be discernment. Jesus himself would bring conversations to a close. But Jesus was certainly willing to engage in reasoned disputations, and so must we. But to do so, we must take seriously our responsibility to prepare. We need to be ready with the truth. This is a question for all of you to contemplate, to examine before the Lord. How at the ready is the word of God for you? It's called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. How ready is the word of God in your life to proclaim truth to others? Is it one of those things where metaphorically it actually is like the coffee table piece collecting dust? Hardly ever interacting with it and therefore not ready to proclaim truth, to search and examine the scriptures with someone else. I shared this last Wednesday night that I had a visit from some Jehovah's Witnesses. I think I mentioned the last service at the end and spent a few hours with them. And one thing that was um, interesting about the whole conversation is just how much scripture these Jehovah's Witnesses had memorized. Able to flip around, find verses, talk about them, discuss them theologically. And these weren't like some supposed, you know, certain leader among the Jehovah's Witness, uh, what is their place called? Assembly, gathering, whatever they call it. They weren't a particular leader in it. They're just a person there. The challenge I think about is, would all of us be similarly ready to defend our faith? We must be ready to engage in a reasoned discussion. By the way, if you're waiting to know all the answers to all the questions, you'll never start evangelizing. So it's not that you have to have every, you just, you won't know all the answers, okay? And it's okay to say, I don't know, and I'll look into it and let's talk about it some more later on. Can we get together again and talk about that some more? But also don't become lazy and slothful and say, well... I just don't have any time. I'm not spending any time in the Word of God. How sharpened is the Word of God in, in your arsenal? Are you ready to go with it? The second rule of engagement deals with how we respond when the discussion moves away from rational argumentation. <laughs> Sometimes the flagrant insults, as is seen in the beginning of our passage here this morning. Rule of engagement number two, expose baseless accusations calmly. And confidently expose baseless accusations calmly and confidently. We see this in verses 48 and 49. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Notice there's two accusations being made here by these Jews. Jesus is a Samaritan and Jesus has a demon. I want to first consider the phrase Jesus is a Samaritan. Because I think it's a good example of a principle we ought to keep in mind. Some insults don't merit a response. Some insults don't merit a response. Why, does, why do they call Jesus a Samaritan? This is a really insulting term in the Jewish way of thinking. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were despised. To such an extent that Jews would even avoid going through their territory. They'd walk the long way around Samaria. The Samaritans return the favor. We even see this when Jesus tries to get hospitality and they deny hospitality to Jesus. So we see the Samaritans and Jews are not on friendly terms with one another. The lines of division were quite pronounced. This accusation may arise from two directions. The first is 
that these Jews had already indicated that they were not born of fornication. We looked at that last time together. They might be indicating here their question regarding Jesus' parentage. Remember, this might be the rumor mill trying to digest the virgin birth. Obviously, they don't want to admit that it was a virgin birth. They don't admit that there's some sort of indecency that went on there. So it possibly could be that. The second thing that possibly going on here is that they're using this insult figuratively because Jesus is acting like the Samaritans. He's one of the ongoing disputes that's going on between the Samaritans and the Jews is who had the right to be called Abraham's children. So in other words, they're saying, you're like the Samaritans. You're playing the Samaritan card. Who really are you, Jesus? Are we right to assume you must be a Samaritan, a turncoat? You're really one of them. Regardless, Jesus doesn't respond to that insult. Now, some explain that he deals with more crucial matter, and some other more crucial matter actually involves the other insults as well. But the text indicates no further dialogue on this matter, and perhaps that's because Jesus didn't feel it worth responding to. This at least can be said. There are some things that are better left unsaid. Some accusations do not merit a response. To respond to some insults is to give some credit to it, which it's not deserving of. Ridiculous, inflammatory insults often are best left unanswered. They often make the very person who used them look worse than you. And sometimes when you engage in some sort of long disputation regarding that particular thing, you end up focusing time away from where you really want to focus time. It's certainly a discernment thing. For the other statement that's made about Jesus, Jesus actually does respond to, but it's not a huge long diatribe, is it? It's actually just a flat rejection. The second accusation that's made against him is that he has a demon. And Jesus says... I do not have a demon. There's his response. It's just a rejection. I think this is also a really good lesson for us to learn. I think sometimes we engage and we try to give proofs and evidences and all that. The initial accusation was founded in nothing. He's just completely pulled out of midair, just throwing something around. He doesn't give it any time because it doesn't merit any time. All he's just saying is, that's not true. And let's move on. There are a couple of times where Jesus has been said to have some sort of league with the demons. Or Matthew 12, he was told that he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. In John 7, 20, just earlier here, the crowd answered, you have a demon. And now two times here in our text this morning, the Jews say this. We find it again in John 10. They're still speaking of it. He says, he has a demon and he's insane. This is verse 20 and 21. Why do you listen to him? And then others are saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? <laughs> even, even people who aren't engaged in the, they just recognize that this is a ridiculous insult. It doesn't, have, it doesn't have any merit. Jesus flatly rejects it. He succinctly, succinctly rejects it. I do not have a demon. He didn't need to give anything further. There wasn't a further explanation required. They had not furnished any proof to substantiate their claim. So all that was required was a rejection. Remember this, guys. Unsubstantiated accusations require nothing more than a rejection. 
They require nothing more than a rejection. No refutation is required because no case has been made. Again, I know my mom has sometimes said this to me, less is more. Less is more. It's not just because it has nothing to do with not being courageous, not standing up. There's a third rule of engagement that I think links us together and helps us understand it. It's this. The third, don't obsess over protecting your own reputation. Don't obsess over protecting your own reputation. Friends, if you do, you'll never actually accomplish it anyway. I don't care how hard you try. There will be people who don't like you. There will be people who say mean things about you. There will be people who gossip about you. Remember also, sinners, you have been gossips too. You have talked about other people. Just remember that next time you get insulted because somebody's talked behind your back. Yeah, they shouldn't have. But you have too. And you've been forgiven by the grace and mercy of God, so forgive them. Certainly you can confront them, but forgive them and move forward. Too often we get too tied up in our own reputation. We're on policing what everyone thinks about us. Jesus, on the other hand, he, he entrusted himself to his heavenly father. He denies that he has a demon, and then he explains his priority activity. He says, I'm here to honor my father. And then he describes what they're engaged in, but you dishonor me. Your attempt right now is to dishonor me. My attempt is to honor my father. That's what I'm after. He wasn't interested in getting into a shouting match regarding his relative worth and what was, his mo- what was motivating his activity. Instead, he knew that God the Father would sort all of that out. He said, I don't seek my glory, but there is one who's seeking it, and there is one who's judging. You see, Jesus could rest in knowing that his Father cared for him. And instead of expending energy defending himself, Jesus trusted his Father's ability and desire to bear witness to who the Son was Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My father is the one glorifying me, whom you say that he is our God. He said, that one that you claim is your God, he's the one that's glorifying me. I don't have to stand up for myself. He'll take care of it. God's going to protect my reputation. He's borne witness to who I really am. And oh, God the Father did that, didn't he? How about Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3.17? A voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Again, we hear a voice from the heavens at Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Arthur Pink does a fantastic job of summarizing this. Here's an extended quote from him. To honor is to do or speak that of a person which shall not only manifest our own esteem for him, but shall lead others to esteem him too. The father's esteem for the son is evidenced by his love and admiration for him, as well as his desire to make him the loved and admired of others. God honored him at his birth. By sending the angels to herald him as Christ the Lord. He honored him during the days of his infancy by directing the wise men from the east to come and worship the young king. He honored him at his baptism by proclaiming him his beloved son. He honored him in death by not allowing his body to see corruption. He honored him at his ascension when he exalted him to his own right hand. He will honor him in the final judgment when every knee shall bow. 
before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And throughout eternity, he shall be honored by redeemed people who shall esteem him the fairest among 10,000 of their souls. Infinitely worthy is the lamb to receive honor and glory. Jesus trusted his father to maintain and to protect his reputation. Jesus did not need to speak a word concerning himself. For his father had already done so and would do do so and would continue to do so. Friends, if this is Jesus' response, how much less should we be concerned about our reputation? Our reputation is not our ultimate concern. And yet we feel this constant urge to defend ourselves. I know this all too well myself. I speak to myself. I condemn myself in this regard. I want to defend myself. I want to prove my point. I I have to make sure everyone's mind is... Right on this thing, especially if it concerns me. What are we doing? How much time are we wasting? Can we just not allow some insults and slanders to just fall away? Just let them go. Why? Because we can't handle all insults and slanders. We can't can't spend our time doing this continually. Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Again, as all things, caution. Not to say we never, there's never a time to provide a refutation to specific attacks. The Apostle Paul exemplifies a good example of that, right? There were people attacking his apostleship and his credibility and authority with the church is hinging on this. So he deals with that. He refutes his opponents regarding it. But I would think this is a good rule of thumb. The closer the attacks revolve around the credibility of the gospel, those are the ones we need to go after. Those ones we need to reject and refute and explain. The attacks or insults that are just about us, let them go. Don't waste time with them. And should these insults and slanders be unfounded, I think just even quick rejection is appropriate. That's all that's required. As we live to magnify God's glory, we trust that he will take care of us and our reputation. And we recognize that no matter what judgments are made here on earth, his judgment is final. And he'll sort out everything in the end. Right? For those of us who know there's an eternity to come and he is the great judge, he will set things straight. So give up this constant desire to have to set things straight yourself. That's the whole point of Romans 12. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Trust the Lord to take care of it. Because he'll deal with it justly and rightly. Quite often all that you'll end up accomplishing is bringing judgment to yourself. In your own efforts. Fourth rule of engagement. Let nothing deter you from gospel proclamation. You see how this follows? <laughs> let nothing deter you from gospel proclamation. And I love verse 51. Smattered right in the midst of all of this stuff. Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. <laughs> and what's so, what's so wonderful about this is, I mean, they're just attacking him. They're insulting him. All the rest. And here Jesus makes another outward call. It sounds just like the beginning of the passage. If you continue on my word, then you're just truly disciples of mine. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Here he says, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Even in the midst of the accusations and insults, Jesus is continually making the outward call. He's still exhibiting the outward call of the gospel. If you believe in my words, you will be saved. You won't taste death. You'll be granted eternal life. Jesus demonstrated consistent gospel proclamation. This wasn't a mere afterthought in Jesus' 
ministry to these people. It was at the very heart of what he was trying to do. He introduces it with that double amen. Amen. Truly, truly, verily, verily. To draw attention to these important words, he makes his outward call. Paraphrase, treasure my words, Jesus says, and you'll never, ever see death. What does Jesus mean by this? Obviously, he has a spiritual connotation in mind. Believers won't see death because believers, having been born again of an incorruptible seed, as 1 Peter 1 says it, live even when they die. They will not experience eternal separation from God and the torments of hell. That's what's being communicated here. You won't taste that. But note this. If Jesus had just spent all of his time rebutting these previous insults, when would there have been time for this? <laughs> Such wonderful, wonderful example for us to follow. Don't get tied up defending your own reputation because inevitably you'll never get back to the gospel. And that's what you're really concerned about. Don't be surprised when lost people live like lost people and act like lost people. When rebels act like rebels. Don't be surprised by that. Instead, recognize it's going to be the course. It's how it's going to be. We must keep the main thing the main thing. The gospel must figure as our priority. Beware of other concerns becoming chief concerns. Recognize there's always an opportunity cost to time, energy, and resources, isn't there? We only have so much time with people. We only have so many words to share with people. So think about that next time when you're in a conversation with someone. I only have so many words to share with this person. What will those words be? What will I spend my time with? Fifth rule of engagement Jesus exemplifies for us is respond to condescension and demeaning humor with sober, articulate truth. Now, that's a big mouthful. What I'm trying to say is this. When people start to make fun of you, and pick at you and make light of the things that you're proclaiming, respond with ongoing, sober, articulate truth. It's not a time to resort to, to frivolous things. They want to make fun of things that have a sober, eternal reality. I've mentioned before, it's one of the worst things that can happen from the pulpit today is for things of an eternal nature to be lifted up as just Flippant humor. It's not that there's not ever humor. There is humor and it can be used rightly. But it really frustrates me. That's an unbiblical word. Angers me when I hear the pulpit being used to just be a stand-up routine. This is not appropriate to the situation. And Jesus here encounters the scoffing of the ungodly. And we will too. You see, Jesus' words had definitely hit a nerve. But instead of leading these Jews to repent, it evoked from them ridicule. Calvin comments, they curse him as men are wont to do when infuriated like enraged dogs. They cannot find anything else to say. They're mad. They can't respond with reason and argument, so they're just going to lash out. You can note the regression of responses with these wicked Jews. Do we not say rightly you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Now we know that you have a demon. You're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died also. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? You haven't yet 50 years? And you've seen Abraham? You can't read these things any other way. I'm sorry. That's the way they're to be read. 
Twice they assert that Jesus has a demon. Even though nothing about Jesus gave indication that he was demon possessed. Then they find Jesus' words ridiculous, so they laugh at the thought that Jesus was greater than Abraham and the prophets. When in reality, there can't even be a comparison made between Jesus and the Old Testament saints. Calvin said, all of the stars are thrown into the shade by the brightness of the sun. So all the glory that is to be found in all the saints must fade away before the incomparable brightness of Christ. Amen. And then they taunt Jesus, asking, who do you think you're so about to be? Finally, they scoff that there is some way for Jesus being less than 50 years old to somehow have seen Abraham, which, by the way, is a misrepresentation of what Jesus said. He didn't say, I saw Abraham, although, since he is eternal, he did. But he didn't even say that. He said that Abraham saw me. He saw my day. Speaking prophetically about what, what Abraham was looking forward to and that he rejoiced. So they even mess up, mess up what Jesus said. They speak from spiritual ignorance. They attempt to make Jesus out to be a fool. Their claim to know God while blaspheming God's own son shows their ignorance, shows that they're ludicrous. But this is so par for the course, especially in our own day. The idea is to make Christianity out to be foolish, ridiculous, irrational. Filled with crazy, ignorant zealots. You know, that's kind of, that's what our culture wants to do with Christianity. Yet the whole time, quite ironically, all these taunts manifest Not the foolishness of God, but the ignorance of these men. Kevin was, he was praying over offering this morning. made reference to this passage in 1 Corinthians 1. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Recognize this. All the ungodly scoffers, all of this laughter that they're engaged in, it's the Lord who will get the last laugh. It is the Lord who will get the last laugh. I'm sorry. If you're a child of the king and you care about the honor and glory of our great God. When you read Psalm 2, you rejoice. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people's devising of anything? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Think about how just ridiculous that picture is. bunch of... Little creatures gathering together their meager supplies to do battle against the creator of everything. The Almighty. The one who holds their very breath in his hand. The Lord will get the last laugh. So what should we do? When the lost laugh at us. When they scoff at the truth that we proclaim. Let's respond to disrespectful laughter with sobering truth. Let's do that. Because you see, while it's still called today, there's an opportunity for them to repent and come to Christ. So let's, as ambassadors of Christ, respond as Jesus did. As they're laughing and taunting, he just continues to respond with truth. Jesus continues to confront these insults, these taunts, the scoffing with clear, precise, sober truth. He won't allow the truth of who he is and the nature of the gospel to be taken lightly. So neither should we. 
Jesus explains that Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day and saw it and was glad. I don't have time to look at it right now. You can take a look later on. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 13. Read through that passage. Really great insight and I think connection with what Jesus is saying here. Connecting that Abraham is looking forward to the coming Messiah. You can read that in Hebrews 11. You see, these Jews wanted to murder the very one in whose, in whose coming Abraham rejoiced. They call themselves children of Abraham, but they want to murder the very one that Abraham was most excited to see. And they ask, they taunt Jesus, who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? What a crazy question. You see, Jesus, who did he make himself out to be in his incarnation? A man of no reputation. That's what he made himself out to be. You recognize this with me? Jesus humbled himself. Jesus did not seek his own glory. Had that been his desire, he could have remained in heaven and continued in the glory that was his from all eternity. Who did he make himself out to be? Philippians 2 says it. Have this attitude, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Isaiah 53 says it. Who's believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Who did Jesus make himself out to be? The servant of his, of his father. He submitted himself to God the Father's plan of redemption. And fulfilled all righteousness. Laid down his life as a sacrifice. For those who believe in him and then rose again, securing their redemption. The sixth rule of engagement, final one that we need to remember here this morning, is to trust in God to manifest the truth, to expose men's hearts and preserve his servants. I think all of this is kind of set the stage for a bold proclamation from Jesus a discussion of Abraham and who are his children has been a major point of this discussion. So this provides a setup for Jesus to make bold proclamation regarding his identity. The Jews are there laughing. So it seems one moment. How could this young whippersnapper claim to have seen Abraham? How could his word prevent people from tasting death when Abraham and the prophets died? All of these questions are answered. These final, bold words of Jesus. Again, he introduces it with that phrase, truly, truly. I say to you, before Abraham, translated here, was or was born or became, I am. Before Abraham was I am. 
Now, this is actually the third time that this I am construction happened in this, in this chapter of John 8. You find it in verse 24 and also in verse 28. On the other occasions, it can be understood as I am he, and it's usually translated that way. But this last one is emphatic. It's undeniable what Jesus is saying here. The phrase is very specific. He's not merely asserting his pre-existence to Abraham, for he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. But he says before Abraham was, I am And with this present statement, he makes very plain that he speaks to his own eternality, that he is eternal, that he is self-existent eternally. And this quality is a distinctive that only God has. Well, Abraham had a beginning. Jesus claims here to not have a beginning. (laughs) Jesus had no beginning. For he always has been, and he always will be. Perhaps next to John 1, the very first part of this gospel, doesn't get any more specific and clear regarding who Jesus is, that he is God. Jesus uniquely knew his Father, he kept his word, because in actuality he was God the Son. And look how these... Supposed believers respond. The insults, the demeaning humor, all gives way to murderous rage. And can I just comment on this? How close between one another those two positions can be? Someone who's antagonistic towards the gospel can one moment be laughing and making fun of it, and the next minute be ready to kill you for it. And there's not really all that much separating those two positions. One moment, they're laughing at Jesus. The next moment, they're ready to kill Jesus. We see exactly where these men are in reference to Christ. They want him dead. It seems like a sudden switch, but upon having their arguments dismissed, their insults rejected, their humor sobered, what remains of their final options are either A, repentance, or B, supreme rejection. Jesus has removed all the rational arguments. He's rejected their insults. He's sobered their humor. So all that's left is either I'm going to repent and believe in Jesus or I'm going to reject him in a huge way. The gospel does not leave people unaffected. Note that. It either softens the heart or hardens the heart. A man walks away from hearing the gospel affected in one way or the other. They understood what Jesus is claiming now. He had used the title God used in announcing himself to Israel in Egypt. There was no mistaking it. He was claiming the independent, continuous existence from the beginning of the uncreated eternal God. That's what he claimed for himself. We see this in Exodus 3.14 when Moses said, who should I tell him has sent me? And God said, tell tell them I am. I am that I am has sent you. They seek out Jesus' death by stoning. This is exactly what was prescribed in Leviticus 24:16. Should someone commit the sin of blasphemy? This is because Jesus' claim is not lost on the Jews. They know exactly what he's just claimed. He's claimed to be God. And so they're fuming mad. They've been waiting for a moment like this. And it, you know, say, they were tasting it. Perhaps on some levels, prodding for it. Yearning for him to say a statement, make a statement like this. They're not even going to put them up for trial. They're immediately going to get stones and they're going to put them to death. 
This is because Jesus' claim wasn't lost on them. Jesus was, in fact, claiming a prerogative, a privilege, a perfection of God and God alone because he was God and is God and will ever be God. The problem for the Jews is that they're incorrect in their conclusion. For, in fact, what they're doing here is they're accusing God himself of blasphemy. The only one who can claim to be God is God himself. And so where they go wrong is in their failure to recognize that Jesus is God and therefore can claim to be God. And by the way, Jesus doesn't go, oh, 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 hey, guys, wait, wait, wait. You took me wrong there. I wasn't trying to claim to be God there. You see, no attempts for him to clarify what he said because he knew what he said and they knew what he said. But they rejected him as God. This is an important thing to note because when I was talking with those Jehovah's Witnesses, they wanted to say to me that, no, the Jews just mistook what Jesus was actually trying to say. Because remember, they disavow that Jesus is God. Capital G-O-D, God. I go, no, I think it's very plain. Jesus had every opportunity to straighten out the matter if they were just mistaken in their interpretation. They weren't mistaken in their interpretation. He had claimed to be God. They were mistaken in their application of that by rejecting that he was God. You see, Job's witnesses have to do that because otherwise they fall into C.S. Lewis's uh, very famous thing. You know, he's either Lord, liar or lunatic because Jesus claimed to be God. So you've got to deal with that. So what they're going to say is that that claim wasn't really that Jesus was God. Now, what they put in its place, I have no idea. But they want to reject that outrightly. Last thing I just want to mention here is we trust God for the proclamation of truth, also for the exposing of what's in men's hearts, as was exposed here. But lastly, for his providential care. We're informed once again that Jesus was hidden. It literally is passive here. It's translated in the NAS, Jesus hid himself, but it literally reads, Jesus was hidden and then went out of the temple. I think this is divine passive. I think this is God the Father affecting his concealment. And then Jesus goes out of the temple. Again, we're reminded this happened several times in the Gospel accounts. No harm would befall Jesus until it was his time, right? Until it was his appointed time. I just want to make this comment that our Father cares about us, his children, as well. And we will not see death until his appointed time. We can trust in that. We don't know when that time is. But we can trust our Heavenly Father who watches over us and preserves us until the appointed time of our homecoming. Remember, the worst people can do is kill us. (laughs) And that just ushers us into the presence of God. For those whom the second death has been removed, the first death has no longer any sting. Sting's removed. I close with just a reminder of these six rules of engagement. Hold on to these. Hold on to some of these principles. Find a way to plant them in your mind and then engage people with these things in mind. Number one, be ready to engage in rational dialogue with unbelievers. Number two, expose baseless accusations calmly and confidently. Three, don't obsess over protecting your own reputation. Four, let nothing deter you from gospel proclamation. Five, respond to condescension and demeaning humor with sober, articulate truth. And sixth, trust in God to manifest the truth, expose men's hearts, and preserve his servants. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, thank you for providing us rules of engagement. Thank you for providing us in your Son, Jesus, not only our Savior and our Lord, the the one in whom we trust for our own salvation and eternal life, but also an example to be followed. Lord, I pray that we would take these truths to heart. And that they would, you would plant them in our minds and hearts that they would be useful on coming occasions. You know, that is always the challenge of, of your word that we not just attend to it momentarily, but that we allow its truth to impact our hearts and lives from now on. We ask that you would apply these truths to our thinking, prepare us for conflict that is inevitable in a fallen world. Help us to shine as lights to those who are in darkness. Ready us for their insults. Ready us for, for the persecution that will inevitably be ours. Remind us that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Prepare us for that. And use that, Lord, for your glory and kingdom. We're thankful that you are the one that's building your church. We recognize we can't, we're not the builders. You're the builder. But you've granted us the opportunity of partnering with you in this marvelous work of bringing the gospel to those who are lost and trusting that you will plant this glorious truth in their hearts. Save them, sanctify them, and ultimately glorify those. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.